Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, The Devil Wears Prada. here with my colleagues Jane Garza hello and Dr. Kim Perkins hello we're members of Nobel an organizational design firm that helps teams adopt new ways of working and every month we take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations we talk about what works what doesn't work and most importantly we talk about the simple tools that they and you our listeners can implement to make the workplace better So at this point, we're going to give you our standard spoiler warning. We're going to be talking about the whole movie. So if you haven't seen it yet, go watch it or forever hold your peace. (laughs) We're only going to be talking about the movie The Devil Wears Prada, not the book. And we're only going to be talking about the business portrayed in the movie. So I think it's well understood that this is a satire parody takeoff, what have you, of... Uh, Anna Wintour and Vogue, but Mm -hmm. we are not making any comments whatsoever on that. We're just basing this off of what we see. Miranda Priestly and Runway. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right. Tell us a little bit about the movie, Kim. So this movie, uh, The Devil Wears Prada, is about a young woman's first job. Mm -hmm. With a very toxic boss. With a very toxic boss in a glamorous industry. And it's which glamorous industry the glamorous <laughs> industry of fashion magazines not organizational design that glamorous <laughs> industry nothing not so nothing nearly so glamorous as organization design but it does have a world full of celebrities and stars and the power is very closely held to the uh, tightly to the vest yeah so we get to see her up and downs in her first few days on the job and then first few months i believe and and how she gets through it and, and kind of how she operates in this environment yeah, how she adapts to it and how um, and how it changes her. Great. So let's introduce our listeners to how we usually break down these films. Jane, could you tell us a little bit about it? Oh, sure. So we always talk about, when we talk about a company inside a film, we talk about the environment first. So like what are the circumstances surrounding the organization, potentially like the competitors, things like that. Then we talk about purpose. Um, so what is its reason for existing? Next, we'll talk about strategies. So what are the choices that we're making and what is the choices that the company is making? Um, and next, we'll talk about structures. What are the actual like structures, departments, hierarchical structure, et cetera, that exists in the company? And then next, we'll talk about systems, which are basically the ways of working and uh, they affect the actual behaviors that you use in your day-to-day work. So let's start talking about the environment of The Devil Wears Prada. This film takes place largely in New York City. What do you guys think? How does that impact the movie and what we see? I think about it as as one of the legions of young people who go to the city from all over the place to make their fortunes. That's the whole thing about the Big Apple. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. So it's kind of like, like hitting the big leagues. So we meet Andy and her friends, I think at the very top of the movie, and they're all kind of the same life point. They're all at a stage where they're trying to get to like their real job in New York. Yeah. And New York is, of course, the fashion capital of the United States. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that we are we are joining her on the scene as she tries to break into not just the fashion, but also the publishing world. Mm-hmm. New York also being the capital of the publishing world. <laughs> exactly. Capital of all culture. Um, it's Or so New Yorkers like to insist. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not a New Yorker. <laughs> We're all ex-New Yorkers around here. So I have a question about New York. Is this a realistic portrayal of New York City on film? Well, I was wondering how she managed to get around town so quickly when necessary, <laughs> meeting all those deadlines. Like, can she just test her? Because even a taxi is going to take more than the time she had allotted. That's true. That's part of, I think, the fun that the movie has with her character is, like, just giving her crazy um, jobs to do for Miranda and then watching her, like, in a montage do those. There's, like, a scene where she's running down the street holding surfboards in New York, which is so great. (laughs) 
I think it is it is a fantasy version, though, of New York in that, okay, yes, yeah, she is technically struggling to pay her rent, but she's still living in, you know, the really nice apartment. Mm-hmm. And she also does have, you know, a, a Chanel wardrobe as a recent college graduate. Uh, I don't know about you guys. I did live in New York. I was not living in those particular circumstances. That was just me. Maybe I'm doing it all wrong. Uh, Kim, you also lived in New York. I did. I moved from Ohio to New York City. Oh, my God. Just like her. This is your story. (gasps) Well, it was actually because my very first boss in New York City was in a glamorous industry. I worked in production services. And so we were doing that. We were handling the New York City shoots for major motion pictures from L.A. And um, I did have a terrible, evil boss in that very first job who did run me around town doing impossible things. She would say things like, okay, so we want to do this shoot tomorrow morning and we're going to need 1,500 film cans and we need them to be empty. And also we don't want to pay for them and they need to show up at nine o'clock in the morning. Go. Mm. All right. So knowing that, I definitely want to put a pin in that and come back later and talk about like, what advice would you give your younger self, right, in dealing with that? Run. But yeah. okay, yes, right, we'll right. About we'll that. we'll come That's back to that one later. Funny. Mm-hmm. I had a very, I had this boss too. Yeah, wow. I had this exact boss. Like some, so many of the things that Miranda said in the film, I are exact quotes that my boss said to me at one point. Ooh, yeah. wow. That's now I now I'm curious. Well, this it's, is terrible. Yeah. I guess everybody's had this boss before. <laughs> so maybe is. this is more realistic than we think. Yeah. Right. So I'm guessing that's partially why this resonated with people is because people did feel like, oh, I've been in that situation before Mm -hmm, and I want to relive it through the magic of film. (laughs) Um, Movies helping you work out your PTSD. uh, Another thing that I wanted to bring up was this idea of technology. So this film was made in 2006. The book was written in 2003. So we're talking early 2000s. And I was wondering if you guys noticed anything about how technology or that that time in our in our history played a role definitely the cell phones yeah right i mean i think we're still using flip phones at this point we are definitely not just ordering things off of amazon on our phones as we go about our day there's no uber that's for one that's for sure so present day there are services that you can like call when you need to get lunch or when you need something delivered which doesn't exist in this movie and so she's like her She's her Uber, she's her Amazon, she's everything for Miranda. That's totally true. She's her Grubhub. We yeah. could have figured that out in a completely different way. Right. Did anybody feel worried about Andy's career choices? Uh, this feels like very much the last last gasp of the print industry, right? She wants to be a journalist, but she ends up going into fashion magazines, which are, are not exactly growth industries and i know kim you actually did is this is this really the movie about you <laughs> this is actually so, a movie about me yeah. i mean I, this is where i rip off my face and you see anne hathaway underneath <gasps> yeah it's um yeah it, well it's it's not a great time to be in publishing because it is a dying industry so i feel like this was probably written about the 90s i was a magazine editor in the 90s and even my small corner of things we just had 250 pages a month and magazines were huge and then they're like phone books and vogue was like like gigantic and people had huge salaries and there's a lot of glamour and it was just unimaginable in today's standards Mm -hmm. so that there's a certain amount of access and security and and a real career that you could have in magazine journalism that absolutely does not exist today one more thing that i wanted to touch on before we really jump into runway as as an organization is why we wanted to discuss this film in particular and a lot of it has to do with ladies being in charge Mm -hmm. so if you guys wanted to expand on that like what what were some of the questions that you had or or thoughts that you had going into this film yeah well okay so one i have a request for our listeners to send us movies with female leaders because we would like to do more but it's not that easy to find films with female leaders that aren't solely about uh, a toxic female leader like there's this movie which is about literally about a toxic female leader it's a bit about like professional development like your career growth too but it's mostly about Miranda um, and then we talked about Working Girl which is a similar kind of not a similar plot but similar uh, focus in that movie it's also about a toxic female leader so we'd love to f- review some movies where that's not solely the focus where there's other things going on as well yeah it'd be great to kind of normalize female leadership and right. not have it be them be 
some kind of monsters that are emblematic of something. That would <laughs> yeah. be great. Thanks. Yeah. And, it, and it's not just female leaders. Looking back at some of the films that we've done, it's usually a white dude in charge, which, mm -hmm. I mean, in some ways, yes, that is like the reality of the situation. But this is where art imitates life, imitates art, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't see representations of different people in leadership roles in organizations, then it becomes a lot harder to think about them and accept them in real life. And from a leadership point of view, what really struck me was how soft-spoken um, Meryl Streep's portrayal yeah. of her is. She never raises her voice. And in fact, when she gets really quiet, that's when you need to know that you are really about to have a big problem. But she says things very sweetly. She says, why is no one ready? So two questions. One is, well, question and a statement. Isn't, this, isn't that a thing to do, right? I have a question. On a podcast, we do that all the time. I have a question, but it's really just what I, I want to say. Um, so the question is, why did it surprise you that she wasn't yelling all the time? Because our portrait, you know, portrait of our toxic leaders, especially in creative industries, is that they're kind of barking and that they're, they yell and that that's partly how they control people. And, you know, we've worked with some creative industries as well in Nobel, and um, there, there's kind of an idea that people have to be kind of a Steve Jobs tantrum-throwing asshole. Can we say that? Yeah, we can say that. <laughs> we just did. In order to um, be effective in a place where you don't, you know, in a creative, creative industry, you really don't want to do design by committee, right? That's, that's artistic death. Mm. And so in these things are very subjective in creative industries. And it often comes down to who has the power to have their taste be the taste that right. gets made. And so a lot of times people, that means that, that there's a real cult of personality that springs up. So it's a very long answer in that a guy in that position would be yelling rather than speaking softly. And so the way that a woman can, but a woman can't get away with most of the time with yelling and, uh, and, having, and having, displaying uh, anger in a hot way. So behind the scenes factoids, which I discovered, Meryl Streep actually chose to speak in that very quiet, whispery tone. She took that from Clint Eastwood. <gasps> she said that she had never heard him yell. Um, and so that and, and that when he speaks in a room, he's very quiet and everybody leans in and that it gives him the power. And so mm -hmm. that's where she took it from. So interesting. Mm -hmm. What's really depressing is she said when she was creating this character, she actually had to pull from the powerful le uh, men in leadership that she knew because she didn't know enough women in leadership in order to mm -hmm. form a character. So, wow. Yeah. So interesting. So always looking to increase the diversity uh, that we talk about here on the show. So definitely send us your recommendations. And we're going to get a lot more into women in leadership in this particular podcast. So, all right. So let's talk a little bit about the purpose of Runway Magazine. What do you guys think the purpose of this organization, uh, this subsidiary of Elias Clark Publications? <laughs> Elias Clark. Elias hyphen Clark. Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, at one point, someone says at the beginning of a fashion show, oh, look, it's the gatekeepers of fashion. I think that's their point is like you, you get to say what's in and what's out. Yeah, it's true. And, and as she has made that point in that whole cerulean speech, this is a billion dollar industry. This is not just frivolous. What shall I wear today? You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back, but what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue, it's not turquoise, it's not lapis, it's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns, and then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Mm. And then Cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. So I was really thinking about what Stanley Tucci's character uh, talks about when he's first trying to help um, Andy 
get find her way and saying that this is actually something that people look up to that inspires people with sort of a fantasy world and gives them something gives them hope and a different way of thinking about existence yeah so that for him even though he's definitely deep in the power dynamic there's also there's also there's this everybody has this idea that they're creating something that's transcendent you know they're creating art yeah wearable art wearable art at one point Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and so that and that 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 higher purpose justifies some of the nastiness behind the scenes i think one of the big questions that this movie actually asks is is fashion important as an industry or is it all just vanity and frivolity right and i i wonder if that one, what do you guys think of fashion as an industry? And then two, do you think the dismissal of fashion is maybe a little bit sexist? Maybe? Mm. Not that I want to sway your answer one way or another. <laughs> no, I'm sure you have no dog in this race here at all, Paula. I mean, I I, I don't. I don't think I own stock in the fashion industry. So, <laughs> Not in that sense. You know, I think those are both really interesting questions. So, um this is a little premature to talk about the ending perhaps, but the ending of this movie bothered me because it was like, ha ha ha, that was all just clothes. And, you know, her boyfriend says you got sidetracked by things like clothes and belts and shoes and really trivializes the whole thing. And to me that completely trivializes everything she's gone through Mm -hmm. and what, and, and even her desires and her ambition and what she wants to accomplish. Yeah. So I didn't like that. I thought that was, that was a, that was a sour note for me. Yeah. I, I would agree that that is not the right wrap up of her of what happened yes. in the movie to her yeah it's not that she got sidetracked by fashion no I don't that think is that's not what happened, what happened. <laughs> yeah I agree in terms of it like how I feel about the fashion industry I have no feelings personally I have no feelings either way I like so like if wearable art great like if there's a passion behind creating something artistic for someone to wear and people feel passionate passionately about that I don't have any negative feelings towards that I think your question about is it potentially sexist view the way that they they look at it in this film is really interesting. And I think you're potentially right there as well. So I know that I said we weren't going to talk about Vogue or Anna Wintour, <laughs> but I'm going to talk about Vogue and Anna Wintour. I happened to watch completely unrelated. Uh, maybe a year ago, I watched the September issue, which is mm-hmm. a documentary of Vogue putting together the September issue. And there was one line that really stuck out to me. And Anna Wintour was talking about all of the really impressive careers that her siblings had held. I mean, like the heights of like publication and like real social impact. And her siblings sort of looked jo- look down on her. Mm-hmm. They're like, fashion this is a trivial thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they, they think that fashion is ultimately silly. And even they were dismissing it, even mm-hmm. though, again, she is arguably one of the most powerful people in an industry yeah i think Mm. i saw that she was something like named consistently named on like the top 100 women leaders in the world as far as the amount of power she has Mm -hmm. i think that there is some there is some sexism in that and there's also some sort of i don't know intellectualism shall we say with that i know i didn't really care about fashion at all until i moved to la i was resolutely not interested in any of this and now I look back at the pictures myself and I'm like oh my god I can't believe I wore that thing that's terrible so so I actually let's let's take a little sidebar there how do you think fashion and how you portrayed yourself in a career sense changed because so Kim you were saying I didn't really care about fashion but then I came to LA and suddenly I did was that is it because LA is shallow and everybody's just (laughs) focused on I'm looking good. <laughs> well, I lived in a bunch of places that love to hate on L.A., so San Francisco, New York City. Um, and when I came here, I really felt a difference in the aesthetic. I really got it in a way. I got the power of beauty, and I got the power of surrounding yourself with beautiful things and things that make you feel good, and that you portray a certain uh, – there's a certain persona that you can portray through your clothing, even if it's just on a daily basis, and mm-hmm. that that actually has some value, and that was not something I'd ever experienced before. Mm. And it did not appear to be shallow to me. It actually seemed to be quite, um, you know, the label consciousness, maybe. But as far as what you're trying to do here, there was really quite a lot of uh, of, of depth and soul to it, I thought. What mm. about you, Jane? How has fashion impacted you from a career perspective? That's so interesting. I mean, I, I think the biggest, I think I would say I had a similar learning about 
um, fashion being about how it makes you feel. Like you can dress in whatever style you want if that's what's making you feel your most confident or powerful or whatever it is. And I like that portrayal of it. And to me, that's not super different from like anything else that you do. Like you have to swim once a day because it makes you feel like a healthier person. Great. Like if that's what makes you up, perfect. I think I'm good with that. Me personally, I don't know if I've had a huge journey with fashion. I'm mostly originally from LA. <laughs> so yeah, I don't I don't know if I have like this this big turning point. But um I don't know. I think it's an interesting question to ponder. In terms of like professional self, I think about it a lot in how I portray myself and it does make a difference in how confident I am when I'm on a stage or when I'm facilitating with a group or training or whatever it is. So it does play a part for sure. So in my first job out of college, my colleagues actually submitted me to what not to wear. I did not get accepted, which I'm really disappointed by. Uh, So like I I have never really cared about fashion Mm. personally, but it was getting to a point in my career where I was getting comments from clients, which were like, oh, but you're so young. You wouldn't know about that. And so it was because I, 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 I made some assumptions, um, but I, I was guessing it was because it didn't look like I was at the stage in my career where mm-hmm. I was an expert or that I had enough experience that I could help them solve their business problems. And so it became something that I really did have to address. Mm-hmm. Um, generally speaking, I'm all for people telling me that I, I look young and I love being carded when I'm out. But in a professional setting, it is really important to consider how you portray yourself and how other people uh, expect you to come across. It's not necessarily fair or how it should be, um, but it is the way it is. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a certain amount of, um, you know, despairing, you know, labor involved in that, right? Because mm-hmm. men are not generally judged in the same way. Like, you know, we watch our male colleague here at Nobel who pretty much wears the same thing everywhere and doesn't have to think about it. I, I don't think it's pretty much, I think. <laughs> I think it is. I, 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 okay, I've seen some very minor alterations for occasions, but, but that's not how we as women, we're going to be judged. People are going to mm-hmm. be looking at what we're wearing, making assumptions about it in a way that they're not going to do with him. And yeah. I just want to say Paula has come up with a very interesting solution for oh, how to make this work. Yes, I outsourced it. I got a stylist. Yeah, uh, because it's LA and you can do these sort of things. Um, I actually had somebody pick things out and put together a wardrobe because it's something that I am not good at and I don't have an interest in picking up that skill. And so, yeah, I've, I've outsourced it. And I honestly see more and more women doing that in various ways. You see a lot of, um, like bento boxes for women, Mm -hmm. or you see, you see a lot of startup fashion companies, Mm -hmm. which are targeting the young professional who wants to Mm -hmm. look good, who wants to not be you know sad or or wearing like power suits um but still wants to be again portrayed as or perceived as a professional right yeah Yeah. and we're finding ways to have that be comfortable too like it doesn't all have to be power suits and heels so that like you're freezing in your office all day or uncomfortable on heels there's new companies like you said that are that are starting up to make that very professional outfits that are a little bit more for comfort too so I think it's pretty clear that fashion really does matter mm-hmm. from a personal, from a professional standpoint. So maybe there is something to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so so assuming that, yes, like this is the purpose of, of Runway. It is to steer the fashion industry, if you will. So let's talk a little bit about strategy. And again, strategy are the trade-offs or the choices that they make in order to achieve that particular purpose. So I was wondering what sort of strategies you guys identified while watching the film. Well, you know, they really have very strong networks and it seems to be all about relationships with the relationships with the designers, relationships with the photographers, with the models. Um, And so that's where they've really put a lot of their their bets on how they're going to do this. There's a really strong informal network without outside the company and within the company. That's true. And at the end, when Miranda is being threatened with termination, essentially, she pulls out the list. Especially because of the list. The list of designers, photographers, editors, writers, models, all of whom were found by me, nurtured by me, and have promised me they will follow me whenever and if ever I choose to leave runway. So I'm wondering, what the is there a trade-off there, Kim? Is Is there a drawback to focusing on relationships, or are you sacrificing something else? Are you definitely sacrificing any illusion of a meritocracy? 
Tell right? me more. There's definitely a sort of an elite circle that you need to crack socially in order to get yourself in there. And it's not about designing a great dress. Right. So this is, I think, always the question people have, which is, how do I get a network if I don't have a network, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. What have you guys found useful in, in sort of breaking into that upper echelon in your career? Mm, what a great Ooh, that's question. That's a good question. I love that question. Um, I think what's helped me is I go to a lot of like not only networking events, but some sort of event that's planned around a topic like the future of work or something along those lines. And I've met a lot of really interesting people, people who are forward thinking about work in that way. And I, I highly recommend doing that. I think it's a really good way of finding your circle of people that you can bounce ideas off of, that you can talk to about their career progression, et cetera. See if they have, you know, a connection when you're looking for your next job. Yeah, it's, you know, for me, I think it's been, well, first of all, I mean, the, the major thing for me has been getting a PhD, because now I can be mm -hmm. Dr. Perkins, and that automatically puts me, means that some people will talk to me who probably wouldn't otherwise. Mm -hmm. I, just, I, I like how you just <laughs> casually dropped, like, oh, Jane's like, oh, I like to go to events, and Kim's like, oh, I, I got a PhD, but basically, <laughs> basically the same thing. It's basically the same thing. No, but the, but aside from that, I think there is something to finding something that you're really passionate about that you really like to talk with people about and you like to engage in. Yeah. And that that gives you something. It's, it's like that whole thing of howling to the, so that people you can your pack can find you. Nice. Yeah, you have to tell people you're looking, basically, yeah. right? Like that you want to make a connection in order for yeah. that to happen. Yeah. Right? All right. So relationships, even over meritocracy. All yeah. right. That's yeah. that's a trade-off. That yeah. is is one. Um, other trade-offs that you guys noticed? I think like personal trade-offs that they expect from their employees are you choose work over personal life at every decision point. I would even push it and say it's not just work. It's it's excellence. Mm. right or, or total commitment it's i don't think it's mm. just a i don't think it is just work i think it's a calling there's a certain <laughs> swagger to it you know and i felt like like this is a very competitive culture so in our way of in nobel's way of thinking about culture is this too premature we'll see if it no. is um when we, we in our way of thinking this is a definitely a wolf pack culture so these are people who, you know, you can run with the pack as long as you are keeping up your kill rate and if you're not we'll probably eat you um so there's something about that you know with the idea that if you're doing what you need to do at a, a super high level then that's helping all of us and we will hold you to that i definitely want to come back to those ideas when we talk about structure <laughs> so it's nice that it, it flows like that um but yeah like so examples of of this lack of work-life balance i mean on andy's first day she gets a call at 6 15 in the morning and they basically already expect her to be in right um, and Miranda Priestley, her character gets a divorce and she's already imagining that they're going to call her the dragon lady. Mm -hmm. So I think I think one of the questions here, everybody wants to know the answer. Can women have it all? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to answer it once and for all on this podcast. So, Jane, can you have it all? Oh, my gosh. Uh <laughs> Yes. In this world and the way that, that you're set up to work in this environment, uh, I don't know. That's not that's not what they that's not how they set you up. That's not how you succeed. If you want to excel, you need to be dedicated to your point. A hundred percent dedication, meaning let go of any personal engagements, anything that would keep you from doing a hundred percent at work. What about you, Kim? They have this line that says, um, when your whole life goes up in smoke, that's when you know it's time for a promotion. Yes. So there's really not having it a personal life. And also one of the things we see with with uh, Andy is that, you know, she is torn between helping her friends and succeeding at work over and over. And she ends up, she has to keep choosing work. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that you do that enough and pretty soon it's hard to really see the value of relationships. It's hard to be one way at the office and another way at home. And if you want to keep friends and have a spouse, you often have to choose them. Okay, counterpoint, her friends are awful. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were not that much fun for her either. Yeah, but I, I do hear what you're saying in yeah. terms of, of choices. So, yeah. so, I mean, we do. We talk about strategy, right? And it's not just the choices that an organization makes. It's the choices that you, as an employee, as a person, has to make in terms of what what am I willing to sacrifice and where do I draw the line? Mm -hmm. um, there was another sad line in there. Nigel, 
uh, where he says, you know, I'm, I want to be able to come to Paris and actually see Paris. Mm. Right? And I remember talking to uh, a fellow consultant a few years ago and they were talking about how much travel they did and they'd just been to all these different exotic locations. And I was asking like, how was it? What did, what did you see? And they're like, well, really, I just see the interior of a lot of conference rooms and hotels. <laughs> totally true. <laughs> right? So those are the challenges. Yeah. Um, one of the things I noticed was uh, looking good, even over being healthy. You look so thin. Do I? Yeah. Oh, it's for Paris. Well, I'm on this new diet. It's very effective. Well, I don't eat anything. And when I feel like I'm about to faint, I eat a cube of cheese. Um, I really question if she should be eating dairy. I just, <laughs> just want to throw that out that there. That seems like a poor choice. Yeah. I mean, you know, you should really be thinking about how that's going to affect your hormones. And it, it's, it's not great for your skin. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Yeah, this movie is very, I mean, very, very, very fat shaming. There are so many fat jokes in this movie. But yeah, it's, and it's required kind of of you at work. When, when Andy first starts and she meets Stanley Tucci, he makes fun of her for how, what size she is. And he's like, you're not going to last here very long. You're a size six. Like everyone here must be a size two or four. And then she celebrates yeah. towards the end of the film. She actually tells him like, no, I'm a size four now. And he congratulates her. Like there's, there's no sense of like... Hey, maybe you should uh, be careful about your dietary. No. But it, there's nothing yeah. in this world that is about being healthy about anything. This no. world is True. not about health. Yeah. True. I mean, even not even from a looking good perspective, but when Emily, the other assistant, is ill, she's still expected to show up at the gala, right? She does yeah. not get, there That's are no not, sick days. No. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, any other, any other trade-offs that you guys noticed or, or strategies? You know, I want to say something about that trade-off when we're talking about how people are working themselves to death. Part of what why that works is because they, as they keep saying, there's a million girls who would take this job at the drop of a hat. Mm -hmm. and, and so a lot of times I think that this happens with organizations that we see that we work with. The more glamorous the industry, the, the worse you can get away with treating employees because it does have that cachet and fits in a creative industry also there's not really an objective measure for performance so much and mm -hmm. so everybody has a little bit of terror about oh my god i could be out of here and they'll put up with it yeah. and and this also becomes an economic issue right because mm -hmm. then it means the only people who can afford to work for free or for not a lot of money are people who already have those connections yep. and who have the wealth right we see when Andy has dinner with her dad, he just gives her a check for the month uh, for the mm -hmm. rent, right? Yeah, thanks, Dad. So, mm -hmm. ah, glamour industries. <laughs> well, we'll we'll start talking maybe about what organizations can do to address those inherent mm -hmm. inequalities. Um, so we've identified the straight the strategies, right? The trade offs. So now let's talk about the structures. And when we talk about structures, ideally, your structures should support your strategies, right? They're, they should be there to make it easier for your team in order to be fulfilling your strategies and therefore achieving your purpose. So wanted to talk to you guys. What, what structures, what is the structure like in Runway? Well, everything kind of funnels up to Miranda. Um, so while there may be structures below her, it kind of just seems like every decision point and everything funnels up to her at the head. N work doesn't move forward without her, basically. That's yeah. totally true. And they even say, they say that, I think, at one point in the movie, which is that she makes a decision about what is included in every photo in every aspect of every issue. Mm -hmm. Talk about a bottleneck at the top. Mm -hmm. How is that going to work? I mean, what, you know, and, and so she's, and even in the, the scenes, she's constantly berating people for not being ready for her to make a decision. So did you bring both bel belts? Right. Uh, quite ready. Right. That's little, that's my favorite line delivery from her. <laughs> Why is no one ready? <laughs> it's so good. Um, Meryl Streep, good good actress, right? I can see. <laughs> she did pretty okay. I can see her going far. <laughs> She's all right. She's great. Um, yeah, I think that's also a bit of a job protection thing too. Like if you make everything go through you, you make yourself completely irreplaceable mm -hmm. um, in this competitive environment. So it's a really good way of protecting. Mm -hmm yourself so i think was it was it jane did you did you just say like there's a hierarchy there's not even a hierarchy it's really it all funnels up mm -hmm. we do see a little bit of a hierarchy 
when Emily is breaking down responsibilities to mm-hmm. Andy on like her first day, she's like, you are responsible for getting coffee. And and then Emily is responsible for everything else, all of the budgeting and the scheduling and the calendar and the this and the, and Andy is really just responsible for getting the coffee and putting away the purse and the bag on the desk every day. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's, so there's a hierarchy, but you also have to kind of work your way up through that hierarchy. And again, in glamorous industries, a lot of that is personal stuff. It's like you're being the, the executive's body man. Yeah. Right, where you're keep you're keeping making sure that they get fed and that they get the things they want at the moment they want them, which is different from non glamorous industries. That's not really what assistantship looks like, mm-hmm. you know. If you were going to go to like JPL or something, but in 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 a lot of creative industries, that's exactly what assistantship looks like. And I would also argue that there really isn't a lot of difference right between assistant number one and number two right like she's all made up she's trying to gain status by dividing the labor but really Mm -hmm. she's she's doing the same things that she used to be doing so not a whole lot of a career path totally Mm -hmm. but being by being the person who gets who does you know small thing a as opposed to b then it's like creating status yeah yeah, in an environment like this where you're doing a lot of grunt work, even the smallest reward feels like such an achievement, too. Like, she gets to not, you know, do the coat anymore, which is an achievement. And also, if she didn't get sick, she would have gotten to go to Paris and likely not actually see Paris, but it's still, like, a very exciting achievement and unlock for her. Yeah, so building off of that, and Kim, also what you pointed out earlier, this is a real competitive industry. And this is where if I win you lose mm-hmm. it's Zero not a some game yeah, yeah. it's yep. not like oh like we all work together and we no it is i will throw you out into the bus because that is the only way i will get anywhere and yeah. if you don't want to be get thrown under the bus you have to make yourself indispensable to me and that by whatever by any means necessary right yeah we see andy do it with emily right when she mm-hmm. goes to paris like you were saying we see Miranda do it with Nigel, right? When it looks like Miranda is going to lose her, her gig as editor-in-chief, she basically gets her rival to take Nigel's job, and she retains her power. Mm. Yep. Yeah. It's interesting to um, think about, too. So when we – part of the thing that's sometimes talked about with women in leadership or just, like, women at work is that there's not a lot of close relationships and people will, like, backstab each other or whatever. Um, but part of that – potentially is sometimes what is called the queen bee syndrome or the highlander complex which is there's only one slot at the top for a woman and so therefore you have to knock everyone else out of the way in order to get there yeah it's true so what have you guys seen through work with clients uh through your own research what's a good way to combat that is there a good way to combat that Hmm. That's such an interesting question because, you know, coming from a sports background, I found that women compete so differently than men. Ooh, tell us more. (laughs) So, you know, as a speed skater, and there are some races where men and women would race together. They'd still be sort of judged separately. There'd be two podiums, but but you would actually do the race together. And sometimes there would be ones where it was all women in a pack together and all men in a different pack. And the dynamics were so different and the way that women's strategies were so different. So the thing was that... um, when women compete, it's kind of 24-7. It's really hard to um, to turn that off. Whereas when men compete, and maybe this is, and I'm likely to think this is more nurture than nature, is that it's for a very targeted and specific period of time. Mm. So I would train with the guys, and we would show up at 8 a.m., meet, have a cup of coffee, go out and try to kill each other for three hours, and then at the end we'd have a burrito, and all would be fine. <laughs> You know, and there I only found really one female competitor that I could ever have that kind of relationship with, because if everything was fine, then really what's happening is it's not fine. We're actually just looking for fodder to help undermine them later because because competition is 24 seven. There's no turning it on and off. Oh, man. Devastating. All right. Well, I guess this is the wrong time for me to say that at the end of this podcast, only one of us. <laughs> We're voting someone off the island. Yeah, pretty much. But, but I'll tell you what, what I've seen as a coach in, in helping um, deal with that is to both ex- um, turn people's attention to the fact that there are there is not 
only room for one person, that there actually is a bigger pie than all that. Mm. And also for dispelling rivalries, you know, rivalries come up when people feel like they're very close in skill, like it could be me or you and I want to make sure it's me. But one thing by focusing people on the differences between the person that they feel a rivalry with has been really useful for helping people not feel competitive with that person. So if you can highlight the, the ways that you guys can um, intersect rather than compete because you have different backgrounds, you have different levels of experience, you have different things that you're good at, for example, and showing how there might be room at the table for both of you is something that people can get their mind around. I remember watching an Olympics, it was a summer Olympics, I don't remember which particular year, but they were doing interviews with both the women gymnasts and the women track and fields athletes. And the women's athletics, or excuse me, the women's gymnastics, who are largely teenagers, right? You could just, you could just feel the stress and the pressure radiating off of them and how intense they were on winning. And then they would go over to the women who were doing the, the sprints, right? And they were 30-something, and they were far more laid back. Like, they were laughing and yep. joking. Mm. Um, and I, this, is, this is my hypothesis. Kim, you can certainly chime mm. in as someone who's, who's been on the competitive field. I think a big difference was in the nature of judgment, judgment mm-hmm. right? Because gymnastics, as much as you'd like to have a rubric, is still inherently subjective, mm-hmm. much as fashion is, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there is no... You can't be like, oh, that is 100% the right or wrong shade of blue. It is just, <laughs> right? It, it comes down to subjectivity. Yeah. And so there is all this stress of you, you can't control it as a gymnast, right? You, there's, there's no way of proving yeah. that you are the best. Whereas if you're in track and field, it's pretty straightforward. You're going to get out on the field and you're going to run. And you're either going to be faster or slower than your competition. But mm-hmm. that's that's it. It's very objective, absolutely. And I think that in those really subjective fields like those glamour industries we're talking about, that really exacerbates yeah. what, what you're seeing. But I also think about like um, what I've read about Hamilton, right? So there's three women who are playing uh, the, the Schuyler sisters in Hamilton. And apparently they have a ridiculously close and supportive relationship with each other rather than what one might imagine of each trying to sort of outshine the mm. others and that they've achieved this by just deciding that they're going to not do that and be relentlessly supportive of each other and lift all boats and that therefore they've created a really good time for themselves they're all having fantastic careers not at the expense of each other right yeah one of the things i i want to point out which is ironic is this film in particular was great for the three women who actually starred in it yeah, right true. so Meryl Streep went on to this movie proved that she could essentially launch a film at the box office mm-hmm. um, it launched Emily Blunt's career this is where she she first became noticed and of course Anne Hathaway this broke her out she was she was just Princess Diaries and this really started to make her a household name and so ironically a film which is all about female competition and tearing each other down was incredibly successful and for this the screenwriter too Aline Brosh McKenna who also this was a huge deal for her yeah so so I think it's interesting to notice what what you see in movies might not always <laughs> Paula I'm shocked are you sure be, be what happens in real life <laughs> you think they foment drama unnecessarily oh my god maybe the whole premise of this podcast is, oh. is wrong I don't know so moving into systems, again, this is how the work actually gets done. What are the daily behaviors that we are seeing? What, what did you guys notice? Um, okay, so I thought, I thought it was very interesting when Andy has to go to Miranda's house and drop off the book. I think up until then, every decision has been made by Miranda like so strictly and things can go wrong so easily that even a simple task like put the book on the desk it like really trips her up and she doesn't know what to do. She's been so constricted that she can't make like any decisions on her own. And she makes a really foolish decision as a result out of panic. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that that, that, that is a thing that toxic leaders may not notice, that they're actually helping people be more fumble-fingered and figuring things out because everybody's so scared all the time and mm-hmm. they're not thinking through things. And the smallest decision takes on these enormous proportions. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Miranda is her own worst enemy in that she never explains her decisions. Mm-hmm. In fact, anybody who asks the question or who is trying to get her to explain the rationale is just brushed off or shut mm-hmm. down. And so what happens... Yeah. Yeah. So when you do that as a leader, what it means is that your people actually never learn. 
It means they have to keep coming back to you every time a decision needs to be made. And mm. the chances are good that you're going to think that they're bumbling idiots because their level of ability seem seemingly gets lower and lower and lower. Right. But that, again, is a protective uh, trait. It's if no one learns around you, you are still going to be the best at what you do. Truth is, there is no one that can do what I do, including her. Any of the other choices would have found that job impossible and the magazine would have suffered. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about her uh, less than adaptive behaviors. Her, <laughs> so right, we, we like to, people like to throw around toxic leadership or that, you know, there's no shortage of ways to talk about terrible bosses. Um, but let's talk a little bit about how she functions as a leader and maybe what she could do better. But... <laughs> Well, she's functioning by by making sure that she's always in control. And so part of that, what we we're just talking about, is by making sure everybody else is a little bit off-center. Nobody's really got their feet under them. You know, there's a routine that is what she expects, and as long as you adhere to the routine, you'll be okay. But that doesn't really allow for a lot, you know. This is not a place where innovation is going to bubble up from below. Mm. So that means the organization is only as strong as its leader's acumen. Yeah. And she is terrible at giving feedback. Ugh. Right? Ugh. Yeah. I mean. Uh, it's personal. It's everything is wrong with it, right? right. Feedback is supposed to be not too personal, something that you can change, something um, like helping you understand the, the reasons why it needs to be a, one way and not the other. She's doing the exact opposite of that at all times. Yeah. Her number one piece of feedback is you are a disappointment. <laughs> yes. Disappointment. That's so personal. Mm. It's so big. Yeah. So, and I think this also brings up a really good question of, is she perceived that way because she is a toxic leader? Or is it, again, because she is female? This is a question Andy actually raises. She she defends her boss at one point and says, you know, she's just getting this because she's a female and she's good at her job. And right, we look at the Steve Jobs of mm -hmm. the world, who was exacting and particular by all accounts. And, yeah, kind and, of a dick is what it sounds like. <laughs> but also hailed, hailed as a genius. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. uh, like what what's your take on that? There's a lot to that. And that's because women, you know, studies have shown women draw more criticism in leadership positions. They draw more criticism across the board. But in leadership positions, they get a lot more criticism and it's mostly over style mm -hmm. and it's over how you did something, not the results you got. So what would your advice be to someone who is in a position of power? And maybe has gotten feedback that they are quote unquote bossy or arrogant or they need to tone it down. Like what are some things mm -hmm. they can do to help people change that perception? Is there, is there anything? Are you just stuck? Well, you know, I, I, I feel of two minds at that because, you know, on one hand, I think that there's a lot of people, especially younger women, are doing a great thing by taking back those words and saying, it's not bossy, it's leadership, deal with it. Yeah. But at the same time, you do have to kind of be able to work and form coalitions and relationships with the people around you. And if you're, and if you're consistently rubbing them the wrong way, that's going to be tough for you know, increasing your own power. So you may want to do something about that. What the literature says for you to do in that situation is to amp up the warmth. So, um, you know, gender role congruence theory. The idea is that we have trouble with women in leadership positions because we see leadership as inherently male. And when women display those agentic, aggressive characteristics that we like to see in male leaders, then we don't like it so much because we're expecting women to be warm and connective and, you know, do shared leadership and actually care about you and what you want. And so what has been shown to work is that if you, you can be your aggressive results oriented self and at the same time ask how the weekend was. <laughs> <laughs> Is, is that all? Is that oh, that's a secret. Show a little bit of caring toward people, and it will actually go a long way towards soft, towards not softening up the image, but will allow you to get away with some of the aggressive results-oriented uh, nature that you that will actually help you get the work done. So let me flip that and say, what if you are dealing with a toxic leader? And Jane, I think you were saying that you have been in this situation. So what are some of the things that you found? Either that, that saved you or that you know now from, from all of your experience that you would have gone back in time and told yourself. Mm. So this specific – so I think Miranda – I think there's like a difference between a boss who 
is like extremely bossy or very um, decisive and doesn't want anyone's input and is particularly frustrating that's like one version but then there's like actually toxic which i think miranda is i think she's psychologically damaging i think like there's a point in the movie where they say she's not happy if people around her aren't panicked nauseous or suicidal which is a serious problem i think that i don't know if you can solve with like the warmth aspect right because there's much more going on there um, i mean nausea does that. help you keep the weight off so <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a perk <laughs> um so I think there's a bit of a difference in those two. Um, and if you are dealing with someone to that extent, which I had, a, I had a toxic leader. So if I were talking to my younger self, I would say, like, leave. Try to go if you can. If you are capable of or if you are able to leave that job and find a new one, if that's an opportunity that's open to you right now, then do that if you can. I would say that's totally true. I mean, you know, the, I think that's the advice. We saw in this movie how – Andy may or may not have been trying to change the situation around her, but the situation around her definitely changed her. So if you're trying to change a toxic environment, the chances are better that the toxic environment is going to change you. Yeah. And so that, that make, means that leaving is your main choice. Yeah. And yet I, I hear what you guys are saying. I'm not <laughs> saying I would want to work at runway per se, but I still think that Miranda, she's, she is a really she's really good at what she does right and like she is terrible but i think she does have a commitment to excellence and i think at least in the world of the movie like she does have a superior eye for fashion and she knows her industry how does so how does that play when you're dealing with the like really smart jerk mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. as, as a boss yeah well, you know, then you have to think about what you really want out of this. What is your purpose mm -hmm. and mission? And if you want to work in the church of fashion at Runway Magazine, then maybe it is worth the sacrifice for you personally. But it's probably is going to have to come down to, you know, what's it worth to you? Yeah, so I would say if you decide it's worth it for you, find allies at work, find people that you can vent with, find a way to, to practice self-care, all the, the good things, and maybe set a deadline. Say, like like Andy said to herself, I just need to get through a year so that I have a year of this on my resume. Yeah, Exactly. Limit your time, time boxing yeah. on that and being very clear about what your next steps are. Yeah. There's a recent study that showed that people who had been – uh, apprentice, shall we say, to toxic leaders, a large part of them didn't become toxic leaders, but actually became excellent leaders because they didn't want to inflict that on anybody else. Right. So, of course, there are those who just go on to, uh, you know, repeat the trauma with, for the next generation. That's mm -hmm. certainly a thing that happens. And that's probably also why the magazine is the way it is. But how about interviewing and hiring? So, Jane, you have an HR background and... <laughs> Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about how Andy uh, presents herself when she's first applying for this job. I know yeah. this is a little afield, but I feel like somebody out there is probably listening and thinking about their next interview for their next job. So let's talk about how to properly present yourself to a future employer. Sure. Yeah. So I watching that first scene when she interviews for the job, I was not necessarily on Andy's side. Like she came into the job. She didn't know anything about the magazine. She didn't know the name of her potential boss. She didn't take an interest in the industry. I would say those are like a few really easy things to to make sure that you don't do when you go for an interview. Yeah. And what about from Miranda's point of view? Because uh, she she doesn't seem to have much of a rubric for hiring. Uh, no, because everything she does is by her gut and her taste. And nobody's going to tell her no. And it's not been very effective because she's fired a ton of assistants, right? Which has got to be frustrating. This is like the woman I worked for in my first job out of uh, after mm. college who um, in, in production services went through, she went through assistance about, I was there for six months and she went through 10 assistants in that period of time. I was not one of them, thankfully. Well, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <What> it, <laughs> it got to the point where the people who were sending her assistance wouldn't send her anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you get to a point where, you know, if you have one bad assistant, you have a bad assistant. If you have 10 bad assistants, it's, it's probably you. Right. Yeah. And so one of the things we actually work with teams when they are thinking about bringing someone on is, is really defining what are you expecting the the role, right? What what are the jobs? What are the tasks? What are the personality traits that you would expect to succeed? What are some things that you know will not work with you personally or in this role? Yeah. 
Yeah. I'd also say like be open to the idea that you're going to have to onboard this person and collaboratively get them up to speed to where you want them to be. It's not going to be their first day in the door, especially if it's their first job um, in this specific industry as well. So, And that's actually a great point because there is no onboarding. At, <laughs> no. At, like Emily doesn't explain that punctuality and obedience are part of the role she doesn't even tell her what to say when she answers the phone exactly um and you can actually see andy like mouthing Mm -hmm. the the words that emily says when Mm -hmm. she first picks it up yeah that's Uh, the thing so if you don't have any sort of onboarding program or if you don't tell people in general if you don't tell people what you value in a leader or what you value in order for them to move up they will just mirror the people around them and that can have good effects and bad effects. But literally, Andy just says exactly what the other assistant says because there's no training program, and that's how she knows to to not get in trouble. Yeah. And it's not like Andy is actually going above and beyond this first week, right? So talking about what you should be doing within your first week. Attempt to learn something, maybe. I mean, she was really not. She was just trying to keep herself out of this as much as possible and above this. Yeah. Uh, one of the things we talk a lot about is engagement within employees. And I think at least for the first half of the movie, Andy is a great example of a disengaged employee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because you usually don't have this problem with a brand new hire, I would say. She came into the role and she's not interested in the purpose of the company or the mission. Or even like, she's like, I'm just going to get through my year. And will I learn something? Maybe, maybe not. Um, so I think the, the signs of a disengaged employee are they're not really passionate or motivated about the actual work that they're doing or to your point learning more about that work um, and potentially the way to combat that is well we have a structure for one-on-ones and hearing from employees so what is making you really excited about your current work what, what are you excited about this week and what are you really not excited about that's on your plate right now and is there a way that we can adjust that I don't know if that's like a thing that you would do for a brand new hire, but if you see an employee that that has been a great employee and suddenly is is having a downturn in engagement, that might, might be a possible strategy. And then let's talk about a often neglected part of the employee experience, which is quitting, because there's a great quitting scene at the end of this film. And I love it because it is so ludicrous. Like she just basically throws her phone away, walks off from her boss, and is now like stranded in Paris without a way. <laughs> she comes slinking back to the hotel yeah. after midnight. It's a very like James Bond. I quit. I'm a secret. I'm no longer a secret agent. Gonna get rid of my burner phone. I'm done. Yeah, it's and, a it's a mic drop, but that's not really how that's gonna go down. Yeah, she still has to pay rent. <laughs> so I don't. Yeah, but so I, what are what are some good ways to quit? Right. What's a good way to end your relationship with your employer so that you get a good reference so that maybe at some point you come back? Well, the main thing is always to try to not put them out too badly. Mm -hmm. Right. So you want to give them some notice. I think in an environment like this where it's so toxic, my thought would be like, don't you want to make that better for the next person who comes in? You could leave a a guide for them so that when they start, they know what to do. They know how to answer the phone, et cetera. And you could make a little change in that culture potentially by doing that. Um, but I think you're right. Like, don't give them notice and help them make that transition in an easier way. I think people appreciate that a lot more than we realize. And often people really stress like, oh, I have to do the standard two week notice. That's not actually a legal rule, I believe, in most states. But just being kind enough to say, hey, I found a new opportunity. I want to give you guys the time to transition. And, and this is the last day I'll be here. There's one other scene I wanted to discuss, especially because it often comes up when you're talking about women in leadership, which is when Andy cries at work. Crying at work. No. Everybody's favorite topic. Okay. So what happens if you do cry at work? Um, does this mean that your career is over? How do you how do you come back from crying at work? <laughs> you know, lots of people cry at work, but and this is a very cutthroat environment where vulner- shows of vulnerability could really be held against you. You know, so most people when they're crying at work, I mean, it's an involuntary response. People don't really mean to cry at work, but it's literally the body trying to deal with all of this stress. If you're the one crying, it's probably it's it's unfortunate you might may have to manage the feelings of people around you while you are trying to deal with your own. But that's mm. probably the reality. Mm. So if you can't do it in private, you're just going to have to tell people, look, I'm dealing with this. Don't worry about me. Don't you know, I'm going to be fine and manage that for them rather than uh having them 
I'll draw in toward you and then worry about them th- 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 thinking that perhaps you are manipulating them. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing I wanted to point out was this idea, again, being a female leader is this idea of age and discrimination, right? So Miranda, towards the end of the film, is there's the possibility she's going to be replaced by a younger, cheaper model, essentially. And she doesn't. She She manages to avoid that particular fate because she's very savvy um but i was i was wondering what you guys have seen in terms of age and discrimination in the workplace for in particular female leaders Mm. it's a tough thing i think that it's certainly on i mean i feel like in in tech industries at least everybody feels like they're moments away from age discrimination you know it seems like it's just nonstop. but i think the women over 50 especially feel it because that there's really there just aren't really a lot of role models for how to be there, there's a lot of stereotypes about people being disconnected and not being right. in touch with things especially in creative industries and i think it's harder for women just because um sexism <laughs> because sexism in summary yeah and i think um i think you're totally right like those stereotypes about being disconnected are, are very alive um in a lot of organizations i think the unfortunate thing is that all of those conversations are happening behind the scenes they're you know people like maybe hr or someone else talking about this person and saying i think they're disconnected and rather than giving that person an opportunity to either show that that's not the case or level up their their existing talents they let them go so I think that's the unfortunate part is give them the opportunity to grow into the role that you need them to be in all right so last question for today we've been hired as consultants we've been sucked into a fictional universe and we are now giving advice to Miranda (laughs) Priestly and the uh, and the team at runway what advice what's the first thing that you would try and tackle in order to improve this organization? I think I'd look at the innovation, right? If they're, if they're interested enough in new blood that they're thinking about throwing over their legacy queen bee, then maybe they're, they're worried about having, getting disrupted, you know? It is still, maybe it's based on magazines in the 90s, but it's past the 90s, right? They're looking for how to do things in a fresh way, not just to um, because fashion, but also to keep competitors at bay. And so I would be thinking about how are you allowing other ideas to come up rather than having it just be one person's vision. And then that turns into more collaborative. That's kind of the spear point, right? For thinking about a little bit more collaborative ways of doing things. Do you have any simple tools or is there an exercise that people could do in order to start that conversation or to start thinking like, how, how do I innovate, right? Mm-hmm. What's, what's a good way to get the team brainstorming or thinking about that? Hmm. I don't, it, it's hard because that's kind of a culture change to try it. I would do something iterative where you could try, you know, try out, give a, a very tiny piece of something small to experiment with what would happen if we let people, you know, what if we did like a street fashion column mm. that perhaps the 22 year olds would look after. Right. It would be tiny. Let's see how it goes. Yeah something small yeah and I would say you know if we're giving advice directly to Miranda she holds a lot of the keys to potentially changing the perception of can we or can we not innovate and I think even just as simply as saying or as asking for feedback on something would give people the message like oh I have a voice I can put in feedback is a would be a big change from what is how the process currently happens I'd love to have them do some psychological safety but I don't think it's safe enough for even the smallest bit of psychological safety right now Mm. Yeah. The other piece of advice I would give is towards the end of the movie, she seems to really warm up to Andy and she's like, I actually see a lot of myself in you. And she seems to enjoy that relationship. I would give the advice of you you probably can't run this company. You can't run this company forever. Right. And there does need to be a replacement. And mentorship is often very rewarding. So I would see if she would be open to potentially starting a mentorship uh, relationship with someone in the organization where she can start training them up and helping them understand the reasoning behind her decisions it's a really great great question because right now it's not clear eventually miranda will step down or be pushed aside and then who will run the organization Mm -hmm. there's going to be a leadership vacuum as there often is but you know post steve jobs for example where nobody can fill exactly those shoes and if that's what the strategy of the company is based on you've got a real problem yeah my my only feedback would actually be feedback I think that some real simple training on how to deliver useful feedback would go a long way throughout this company. 
So when we train on feedback, Kim, you alluded to this. There's a couple of things that you should do. Um, one, if you should praise people, first of all, um, more than you criticize them. Feedback can, in fact, be good. I know. It's a crazy concept. <laughs> Catch people doing something right. We've seen ratios of saying you should praise to criticize at something like 5 to 1, 10 to 1. It really depends on your particular context. Uh, but the point is, when you see people doing things that are good, are, that are right, you should compliment and, and call them out. Because that's how they're going to know to do it again and look for right. new ways to do, apply that level of excellence. Yeah, and they already know how to do the things they've done right. And so telling them to replicate it is a lot easier than telling them what they've done wrong and how to do it better the next time. And Miranda does that once, I, I think may, maybe, maybe twice, um, but once when she's in the meeting and Nigel makes a suggestion or he says, like, here's what we're doing. And she goes like, oh, great job. As always, I'm glad somebody did their job right. So mm. um, a bit undercutting, but you want to publicly praise. Now, mm -hmm. the flip side of that is that when you are criticizing somebody, you want to do that in private. And Miranda is terrible. She's terrible. Like she, and this is part of why she's a toxic leader, right? Mm -hmm. because. Yeah, because because it, that constant drumbeat of of criticism in public just makes everybody keeps everybody off their game, and that actually makes it harder to do things right next time. Yeah, so getting her to criticize people privately, uh, and then also to be able to explain the rationale, right? of not just saying, that was terrible, you failed again, why are you wasting my time, right? I instead breaking down, like, here's why I want this option. These are the things that I want to see and that I expect from you next time. Because again, otherwise you're just going to keep repeating those same mistakes because- Clarifying the behaviors you want to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Thank you for listening to Work of Fiction. You can check us out at workoffiction.fm or tell us what of your TV organizations you think we should analyze next. Send a note to heart at nobl.io. Oh, and of course, subscribe, smash that like button, and review it. Tell all of your friends. Until next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye.